Welcome back to Trinus Magnus, Jab's Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm happy to say that the floodwaters... Well, they're not exactly receding, but they're not getting any higher, so... Maybe that's the perfect summary of what I'm going to be talking about today, but... Anyway, basically what I did... At least in the episode that I released on Sunday, the episode of Trinus Magnus Jab's Reality... I just made this kind of jokey uh, mini-series I started off uh, by calling Radio Free Isengard. And the basic shtick of it was I wanted to talk about Return of the King and how the theatrical cut of Return of the King is surprising, perhaps only to myself, but the theatrical cut of Return of the King is actually superior to the extended cut, which... I guess I never really noticed before, and I wouldn't necessarily have predicted. Right, now, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, and I guess for those of you who do know, forgive me, but you never know which episode could be somebody's first, so for those of you who have already heard this, please indulge me. But for those of you who didn't know, it took me a really, really long time to really get into Lord of the Rings, and the reason for that is because when it comes to, you know, just the things that I want from any story, at least historically, it's always been story, 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 story. You know, that's always been my thing. And so that's really the reason why I think it would be fair to say I always kind of favored Star Wars over Lord of the Rings, because with Star Wars, there's a pretty clear beginning, middle, and end, you know? Uh, the story starts in Star Wars, it continues in The Empire Strikes Back, and then it wraps up in Return of the Jedi. Right? There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. You know, and what happens next? You know, what the characters do, where the story goes. That's what really drives everything with the Star Wars trilogy. And if that's the baggage that you're bringing into Lord of the Rings, and it was certainly the baggage that I was bringing into Lord of the Rings, then I think it's maybe understandable that Lord of the Rings, and probably anything by Tolkien, uh, Tolkien is probably going to leave you cold, you know, and indeed that seemed to be what happened, at least with me, right? So the day came, though, when I, I guess what I, I guess what happened was I realized that not just Lord of the Rings, but really the entirety of Tolkien's Legendarium, it's basically, it, it's not a story. Per se. I mean, yes, there is a story in there, but it's not exactly a story as such. Basically, the Legendarium is its own world, and that world has a history. And so what all of the different uh, books and stories and whatnot that uh, comprise the Legendarium do is they flesh out what that history is. You know, what, uh, you know, the, uh, the people and the cultures that make up that world, their languages, their customs, um, you know, their histories, and in some cases, even, I guess, their, their creation uh, stories of, you know, how their world began and all of that. And the recognition of that made the Legendarium as a creative work a lot more easy to accept and understand and, dare I say, even enjoy, 
So there's a there's a degree of enjoyment that I have with Lord of the Rings that I'm I dare not exaggerate in saying that did not exist even two years ago. You know. So this I mean, guys, I am a late adopter of the Legendarium. This is a this is a pretty recent thing in in I guess the the broader sweep of history. You know, pretty recent thing for me. You know. So anyway. Now, I guess with that as background, in the last helping of Radio Free Isengard, what I did was I talked about, like I said a second ago, I talked about Return of the King. And basically what happened was uh, Hurricane Harvey, a Category 4 hurricane, made landfall and then steadily dwindled from there and became something less than a full-blown hurricane, but still created a lot of havoc and therefore a lot of free time. And so what I did was I just watched the theatrical cut of Return of the King. And I think the last time I'd watched Return of the King, it was the extended cut. And it's enjoyable, I guess. But man, rewatching Return of the King, number one, with this uh, newfound appreciation I have for Lord of the Rings. And then specifically that it was the theatrical cut. It's like, man, this is a really damn good movie. You know, I'm, I'm getting into this in a way that I just would not originally have expected, right? So I thought, you know, it might be kind of fun to watch The Two Towers, the theatrical cut of The Two Towers. Why I'm watching these movies backwards is anybody's guess, but anyway. So that's what I did, watched The Two Towers. And obviously there's an extended version of The Two Towers as well, and... Eh... I mean... The extended edition is pretty much a wash, as compared to the theatrical version. I really don't see how one is drastically superior to the other. The theatrical version gives pretty much everything that you need to know in order to follow the story. No fuss, no muss, all thriller, no filler. The extended version gives all kinds of additional bullshit, but unlike the extended cut of Return of the King, there's actual merit to some of this stuff with the two towers, but there's also a logical and cogent argument for cutting it out in the first place. So right there, the extended uh, two towers already has a leg up on the extended Return of the King. For example, you've got the party at Osgiliath after the, the forces of Gondor have reclaimed the city from, from Mordor, right? Boromir cele celebrates with Faramir for a little while, and then it's, I guess it's in that moment that you get a real sense of the bond between the two brothers. And then after that, Denethor comes along and shits all over everything. He orders Boromir to go to Rivendell for er Elrond's council and all that fun stuff. And so, on the one hand, yeah, it's nice to have this stuff. It really does set the agenda for what happens in Return of the King. Of course, the logical counter-argument there is that Return of the King sets its own agenda itself. It doesn't need any help. Yeah, Faramir comes off a little bit like an asshole for most of his participation in the Two Towers, but the extended edition doesn't really change that very much. But damn it, man. Return of the King does. So, what's going on here? And yeah, it helps to know that Denethor is an absolute prick. But again, Return of the King 
does that for us. Faramir being a hard ass makes total sense after, after seeing Return of the King. And Return of the King tells us everything that we need to know when it comes to Denethor. So this business in Osgiliath with uh, Boromir and Denethor in Return of the King, or sorry, in uh, The Two Towers, that's good stuff, all right? But it duplicates a lot of bullshit that Return of the King addresses in even better detail. So it's a wash. Apart from that, during the march to Helm's Deep, Theoden tells Aragorn about Eowyn. And in case it wasn't clear that Eowyn has a thing for Aragorn, well, here's the 97th reminder. This stuff is well-written and well-performed. Eowyn serves Aragorn a, this really nasty-looking soup or stew or something during their little trip, and he tells her that basically just how old he really is, and it's then that she realizes that he's one of the Dunedain. And she's understandably a little bit put off by that. It's great drama. But here's the thing, it's still repetitious. Yeah, the acting and the writing are all top shelf, I'd never say otherwise, but is that enough, really, to justify including this stuff? I don't think so. Losing it doesn't hurt, but having it doesn't really gain anything, so this too is a wash. Speaking of Aragorn's love life, there's some additional dialogue in the scene where he and Arwen part ways, and I love Liv Tyler as, as Arwen, so to me, I, it's like you don't really need to, to explain why she's in the scene. She's in the scene, that's, that's good, I have what I need, let me just enjoy Arwen. I just love Liv Taylor as Arwen. And the regret in Aragorn's, uh, Aragorn's voice is, I think it's pretty apparent when he says these words that are obviously killing him. But here's the thing, guys. We already know that Aragorn is skeptical about his prospects with Arwen. Even if the good guys somehow win the war, Arwen is still condemning herself to a lifetime of grief and pain because Aragorn's gonna die sooner or later. Whether it's from battle or old age, he's got an expiration date. Other scenes in this trilogy, hell, this very scene itself, will all drive home those same messages. So extending something that already repeats shit that's been said elsewhere, well, Nothing much is gained, but it's so well done that it's not really a waste of time to watch it again either. So, this too is a wash. Also speaking of Aragorn, there's a moment in the extended edition where Wormtongue gripes about Aragorn to Saruman. Saruman obviously doesn't take Aragorn all that seriously. Now, this is more important than it might seem. Saruman and Aragorn never really have a scene together, so Saruman expressing an opinion about Aragorn ought to be fairly important. Except that Saruman doesn't really take anybody or anything seriously except himself and Sauron. Naturally, then, he's going to snidely dismiss the, the heir of Isildur as a threat. So again, we've, we've got a scene extension that's going on here that speaks to character without really telling us much of anything that we couldn't have sussed out on our own. Of course, Saruman doesn't take it. He doesn't see Aragorn as a threat. That's practically axiomatic for the guy. 
we already could have figured that out, that he wouldn't think too much of Aragorn. But the other thing is that the rest of the two towers, and really either cut of Return of the King, never shows Saruman being confronted with the error of his ways when it comes to Aragorn. He's never going to live to see himself proven wrong about Aragorn. So why establish that he's wrong at all? So this too is a wash. Now, to move away from Aragorn for a while, there's a moment where the Ents spend a lot of time telling each other good morning in the extended edition. Before this scene starts, the audience doesn't know if the Ents are going to decide to go to war. During this scene, the audience doesn't discover if the Ents are going to decide to go to war. By the time this scene ends, the Ents haven't decided if they want to go to war. So in theory, this is a perfect scene to cut since it contributes nothing, literally nothing, to the narrative. But what it does achieve, and this is important, is show that Mary is getting impatient. That's good character development. The reason he's getting impatient is because the Ent language is very slow. Communication between Ents is not a fast process at all. And that's good world building. So there are merits to keeping the scene in the movie. But there are also some strong arguments for cutting it out. Say it with me. This too is a wash. Speaking of Mary and, Mary and Pippin, closer to the beginning of the movie, there's a confrontation between the orcs and the Urukai over what to have for dinner. And also what to do with Mary and Pippin. The extended edition shows us that the reason for the conflict between the two factions is because one of those groups is from Mordor, and the other group is from Isengard. The Urukai are more disciplined and determined to do their duty. And considering that they answer directly to Saruman himself, and he's the one who's cracking the whip, that actually makes a lot of sense. Of course they're going to be obedient. The other faction is more willing to bend the rules and disobey their orders. They're from Mordor, and guys, let's face it, it's not like they regularly have lunch with Sauron or anything. Odds are these orcs have absolutely no idea what they're even fighting for. They've been told to go out and tear shit up, so that's what they've done. But they're not exactly scrupulous about following instructions to the letter. Now, <clears throat> this is all useful information to have, and it's absent from the theatrical cut. Or at least it's not explicit in the theatrical cut. But back in Fellowship, the viewer watched squads get dispatched both from Isengard and from Mordor. We know that those two groups eventually mingled together, and that's the same bunch who attacked the Fellowship, killed Boromir, and captured Merry and Pippin. So, did we really need this scene where they uh, decide what they're going to have for dinner and what they're going to do with the hobbits? <clears throat> Well, I mean, for conveying useful information, the best you can say is maybe. Though I personally would say no. Still, this scene does reinforce the total lack of unity that the bad guys have with each other. Sauron's going to betray Saruman at the first opportunity once the One Ring is back in his possession. And for his own part, Saruman is only on Sauron's side because he looks most likely to win. But it's pretty clear that Saruman wants the One Ring for himself. So this lack of unity 
is true between Sauron and Saruman, but it's also true between all of their respective followers. Meanwhile, the transcendent values which ultimately save the world are love, friendship, loyalty, and sacrifice. These philosophies are what bind the free peoples of Middle-earth together and enable them to win. So, the conflict between the Orcs and the Urukai is interesting in that it, it, it reinforces that theme. But that theme was already illustrated in Fellowship when a newborn Urukai strangles an, uh, uh, an Orc. And it happens again when, uh, in uh, Return of the King when Frodo gets captured by Orcs and they all kill each other over his clothes. So, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this, this, dinner, uh, this dinner scene in the extended two towers I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's really extraneous to include that stuff. But at the same time, really not much is lost in cutting it out. Do you think that this too is a wash? <sighs> anyway, there's probably more I could throw in here, but you, you get the idea. Unlike Return of the King, the theatrical cut of The Two Towers isn't superior to the extended edition of the two towers in any obvious way. It's a wash. <laughs>